show your heart, show your humanity. This is the time for human being, not human doing. Hello, and welcome to Meet the Leader, a podcast where top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. Today, we speak to Lena Nair, the first female, first Asian, and youngest ever Chief Human Resource Officer of Unilever. She'll talk about how to give people a voice and purpose at work, and why for today's leaders, the soft stuff will be the hardest to get right. Subscribe to Meet the Leader on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review us. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum, and this is Meet the Leader. All the stuff that makes us truly human is what makes us better leaders. Lena Nair is the Chief Human Resource Officer at Unilever. In most roles she's held, she's been the first female in the position. That's given her a special perspective on pioneering and what's needed for the future of work. Unilever is testing things like four-day work weeks in some locales and other programs that modernize the classic nine to five. Some of these programs that seem unconventional now, Lena predicts will be part of our regular workday sooner than we think. Of course, the real challenge for leaders, Lena says, might not be what they expect. It will be in the soft skills, the vulnerability, transparency, and empathy that can truly mobilize and find solutions in a world that's constantly changing. Mastering those soft skills, she says, will be the hardest change of all. She talked to Meet the Leader about all of that, including a dramatic experience that actually changed how she sees leadership. But first, she'll talk about what it's like to be a first in any role and how it's shaped how she leads at Unilever. You know, one of the things it has done to me is I'm extremely conscious of how I make it easier for those who come after me. So I've been a huge champion for inclusion, huge champion for greater gender balance in the company. We have more than 700 policies that support men, women in all stages of their lives and careers. And a lot of it has also been influenced and shaped by the experiences I've had being someone in a minority. I think what tends to happen is when you are the first, everyone looks at you and starts assuming you represent all women or you represent all brown people or you represent all Asian people. Well, that's not true. You represent one person. So what happens is your successes get amplified massively and your failures get amplified massively. When you fail at something, people say, ah, that's why we shouldn't put a woman in the role because it's too goddamn tough to do this tough assignment because it's a woman. So that's the burden it brings. And it's always made me conscious of how I work to make it easier for those who come after me. Now, I have to think way beyond what this action means for me. You know, in my early times when I was living in a hotel in one of these small places where we had a factory, I realized the hotel was not that safe for women. So I went back and challenged the admin department, the then HR department, and got them to go and assess hotels everywhere where women were going to stay or had to stay as part of their training and make sure they were much safer, for example. So every step that I take, I have to remember that there'll others come after me. You know, I often joke about the story about Lou's. I mean, everywhere I've worked in, because I was the first woman, there never was a ladies' Lou. And I always had to start by saying, okay, now, where do I sort of go to peak? Can I have a Lou, please? And it was a standard joke that the capital expenditure of every of these factories or offices would go up when I landed because they had to build a little Lou for me. So I jokingly said, why don't you name these loos after me? And that's how, you know, people used to joke about Lena's loos. It became a brand. 
that uh, I hope survives. So that's the privilege and the burden piece. You've got to take both in your stride. The privilege of being able to do things you didn't think possible before, but also the burden of making it easier for those who come after you and the burden of success. You don't want to fail. Having been given the opportunity to be the first, the last thing you want to do is fail. So you feel this enormous pressure and sense of responsibility to succeed at every job you're given. So it's been an incredible privilege of my life to be able to challenge some of the norms and break a few glass ceilings. I actually call them glass basements, but it's also been a burden being the first at every job I've done. So you mentioned that in some places you worked, there wasn't a woman's bathroom. Uh, I think that everybody wants to build an inclusive place to work, but they they may not realize where the gaps are. That's probably especially hard when workplaces are evolving and they're changing very, very quickly. What are the tells uh, that people can look for that can help them point to those gaps and have a more inclusive organization? You know, uh, one of the simplest ways of thinking about it is to always focus on the numbers and culture. Yeah. Always focus on, are the numbers really moving? Do we really have more people at our team that look different? Or are we all sort of looking the same, studied the same place, did the same things, think alike? So constantly looking at the numbers to say, are we bringing people to the top table who are looking different, bringing a different toolbox, having a different life experience? The other is, Everything you can do in your annual employment survey to ask about whether people are feeling safe to speak up, because psychological safety is one of the big indicators of whether your culture is truly inclusive. So one of the big signs people must look for is, are people speaking up about issues they care about? Are they, is there a lot of groupthink going on? So you've got to look at the numbers and the culture, and it'll tell you a story of the organization. And look at the leadership. If you see leaders in the company role modeling inclusive behaviors, you know, they're being equity advocates. They are creating an environment where it is psychologically safe. They constantly ask people to share views and opinions rather than just listen to the sound of their own voice. They're constantly asking people to be humble, curious, and are role modeling those behaviors. So looking at the senior leadership of an organization also tells you a lot in terms of what behaviors are encouraged and what behaviors are appreciated in a company. So you have an engineering background that is not very common for HR leads. How does that shape how you look at your role and your responsibilities? You know, when I did engineering, engineering and uh, electronics and telecommunications engineering, and I told my father I wanted to do an MBA and specialize in human resources, he was like so disappointed. He said, who does like this massively interesting telecom engineering, which was all the rage 30 years ago, and go and do Personnel, it wasn't even called human resources in those days. Who does personnel? It's a back office function. Nobody listens to HR or personnel. Why are you wasting your life? Why are you doing this? So that was sort of the summary of the uh, mindset and attitude in those days. Even my professors would say, you know, you've done engineering. Now, why are you doing HR? I mean, it's like the yin and the yang. It's like the hard and the soft. But you know what? In the last decade, I'm convinced that it has given me the best combination of both skills. It's given me hard skills and soft skills. Engineering has given me the problem solving, the analytical mindset, the extreme numeracy needed. And uh, uh, my background and exposure to HR has helped me understand the value of empathy, compassion, inclusive leadership. So I jokingly tell my team that, you know, 25 years into my career, I finally got relevant because I'm the best combination of head and heart that you can find. Now I don't have to justify why I did HR after doing engineering. Now it's taken for granted. 
what that's brought into the function is a huge data orientation. You know, I keep pushing everything we're doing. How does it turn up in the business? How does it lead to better success as a business? So, for example, you know, it's great to invest in the health and well-being of our people. But because of our data orientation, I know that for every dollar I invest in the health and well-being of our people, I get a return of two and a half dollars. I know that through the work we're doing on predictive attrition, we've saved 50 million euros for the company. I know that by having higher engagement in our people, it's led to a fall down in attrition in many parts of our world that has led to a saving of 75 million. So what it has helped us do is not stop at initiatives. We want to do a lot of nice things in HR because we care about people, but to push it to say, what's the data? What's the evidence? How does it show in business? Why are we as a business a better business? Because we're doing better things for our people. So it's helped me bring measurement science, data science, evidence-based leadership into HR, which, which makes the board listen. And I'll give you an example. We are LinkedIn's fourth most followed employer in the world. We have 2 million applicants for our jobs every year. We have like 12,000 jobs. It's not like we have millions of jobs. We have 12,000 12, jobs, 2 million people apply for us. But you know what? Our recruitment costs have come down by 90% in this decade. Because we're so attractive, we convert people sooner. Our strike rate is very high. If we give an offer, 96% of the time the person takes the offer and so on and so forth. So I'm able to therefore put some measurement in data science and connect it to business and talk the language of business. So the initiatives in HR truly land well and get full ownership from leadership and the board. You were talking a little bit about the importance of numeracy. Uh, is there a key element that people can keep in mind to use numeracy to balance and uh, measure that humanity piece so they can take it further? We believe in purpose very strongly. So we believe that companies with purpose last. That's one of our fundamental beliefs. Brands with purpose grow. So we believe each of our 400 brands must have a purpose. They must do some good in the world. And we believe people with purpose thrive. So we are the first company of our size and scale that's put everyone through Discover Your Purpose workshops. We have more than 60,000 people who've gone through Discover Your Purpose workshops. We all believe that a purpose anchors us, helps us in uncertain times to spark our passion and remind us of the things that we really care about. Now, this is great. This unleashes humanity because you are encouraging people in a company to discover their purpose. We work with London School of Business and we said, hey, can you work with us to tell us what's the impact of these workshops? And they've done some great piece of work, working with, you know, 3,000 people who've been through these workshops. And they've come back saying, you know what? These workshops and the ability to live their purpose at work has increased motivation by 32%, increased retention by 46%, increased job satisfaction, and so on and so forth. So, yes, it's a deeply human thing to do, to invest at scale, in encouraging everyone to bring their purpose to work, to live their purpose at work. But what data does is it shows you how that impact shows up. So to me, it allows us to be more human because you can show the genuine impact of greater humanity at the workplace. There's a really compelling story that I read about you, and I wondered if you could take us through it. In 2008, you were at a Mumbai hotel, and there was a terrorist attack. And there was a hotel worker who led everyone to safety. And it had an important impact for you as far as leadership. Would you be able to talk to us and take us through that 
and how it shaped you? One of my leadership beliefs is if it's to be, it's up to me. Yeah. Which is if you think something is wrong or something needs to be changed, try and do it yourself. Don't wait for the whole world to come along. Don't be a victim and say, oh, it all sucks, particularly in leadership jobs. You have no business moaning about it. You can't be victim. You've got to get out there and say, okay, what can I do to make this happen? And that was one of the nights where this came out so alive to me. I mean, I really believe hierarchy doesn't matter age, doesn't matter where you are in the organization, doesn't matter. Leadership is, leadership can be anywhere. It's situational. People rise up. They inspire others through their action. It, you don't have to wait to say, oh, I'm going to be senior in this company. I'm going to be the CEO of this company. Then I'll drive change. You've got to throw yourself into every problem. So this was Terrorist Attack 2008. Of course, the, the most difficult night of my life without, without doubt. And uh, it was a night where, you know, we, we didn't know whether we'll come out alive. It's like staring at your mortality and death in the face. We were hiding for our lives, trying to find places where the terrorists wouldn't find us. And you're doing 10 or 12 hours of trying to hide in the hotel, desperately praying and hoping nobody finds you and that you'd get out alive. And of course, people like me worrying about our kids back home. My, my kids were nine and four or nine and five at that time, really young. And But what I got inspired by was this young girl, you know, 24 years, Malika Jagad, who was leading the staff who was serving us dinner, a staff of about 24 people was serving, serving us dinner. And she kept her poise, her composure through the night. I'm sure nothing in a training manual had ever trained her. What do you do when terrorists attack a hotel? There's no such manual written or no such chapter in a manual written. And she rose to the, to the challenge with such courage, such poise, and helped us find a way to escape when the smokes filled the rooms that we were hiding in. And even as we're coming down, the ladder came. And, uh, you know, we said, okay, ladies first, gentlemen next, and we're all going down. And she said, no, as we go down the ladder, she said, guests first, staff next, me last. Incredible, 24 years old. And guided us through that. And I think it just reinforced for me and brought it alive how you can be in a situation, take charge. It doesn't matter what level, what age you are. You can inspire others by being willing to lean in, to take some calls, to be there to support each other and to find a way out of any problem. And though it is the darkest night of my life, it still has glimmers of hope when I, when I think about people like Malika. Are there any moments after that time when you've sort of summoned her reaction and said, hey, I'm going to be the change. I'm going to take this tack or that tack. Have you summoned that later on? One of the things that night did for me was also to question myself. What is that I wanted to contribute? Because suddenly you realize it's not like you have a lot of time. You know, when your mortality hits you that, you know what? I could have actually been among the hundreds who died that night. It does bring a sense of urgency to the things you really care about. So in many ways, it enhanced my sense of purposing what do I really want to get done? What do I want to contribute to on this planet? What are the causes I care about? And I become braver and bolder in following those choices and following my heart and following my purpose and saying, I'm going to make a goddamn difference to this because I deeply care. And it's not like I have a lot of time. But And her story has always inspired me that leadership, you know what? I can dial up my leadership even more. I don't need to wait for anyone. If it's to be, it's up to me. 
And it's amazing, Linda, I've told the story to so many young people and so many of them have come back with stories of their own. I mean, Aman, who in Bangladesh has challenged the entire schooling system and has set up, you know, a different kind of digital schooling online education system for young people in Bangladesh. I mean, story after story of people who've seen a massive challenge that they feel passionately about and have gone in there and have not waited for governments, public opinion, money, but have gone in there and have blasted through and tried to find solutions. So there's a lot of interesting things that Unilever is doing with the future of work. And I wanted to talk about a program that you guys have called U-Work. Unilever realized that uh, at a certain point, a third of the workforce in the UK was eligible for retirement. And it created a special solution for them so that they could share their insights, but still be able to make a transition and make their next plan. I wanted to talk a little bit about this and what's been so powerful about it, also how it's evolving. Yeah, it's a great question, Linda. You know, uh, one of the things that COVID has done for us, for everyone else, it's accelerated the future. You know, we were all talking about, oh, digitization is coming, reskilling is needed, uh, you know, fourth industrial revolution. We were talking about all these things. But what COVID has done is it just accelerated for white collar workers everywhere. Suddenly we were living, shopping, breathing, doing all our work online. And it's challenged many of the assumptions of of how work should be done, where work should be done, how should we come together. In fact, I believe this is such a beautiful moment for leaders everywhere to reimagine and reinvent work because the traditional models of employment have been broken. I mean, is there a single person among us who didn't think through last year saying and this year saying, oh my God, maybe there's a different way of working. Maybe I can do this differently. Maybe I don't have to wake up every morning, jump into a train, go to work, do that week after week, month after month, 40 years of my life, no break. We've all asked ourselves the question, oh my God, maybe there's a different way of getting work done. That's why I think this is a beautiful moment for companies, for leaders to challenge the norms, try new things. So I'm a huge advocate for pioneering and experimenting new models. We may not have all the answers, but you bet we are going to try. We're going to pioneer. We're going to experiment. We announced a four-day working week in New Zealand, and our New Zealand team for the last six months has been experimenting with what a four-day working week can look like. U-Work was the model we came up with in the UK, because what we realized is people are increasingly needing flexibility but also security because they they want to make sure they're earning enough to look after their families. And this model, what it does is it says, you know what, work with Unilever for a minimum of six weeks, maximum of six months on projects and things you care about. And the rest of the time you can do what you want for the remaining six months. And we'll pay you not as much as we did when you were a full-time employee, but we'll pay you a decent amount and make sure we're taking care of your benefits. And it gives you flexibility of time And it gives you security because you have an employment contract with Unilever. Because what tends to happen is there's just two models. Either you sign up for everyone working all the time and leading the crazy lives we do, or people doing gig. There's nothing in between for people to combine flexibility and security. So that's what U-Work tries to do. I'm delighted it's landing really well in the UK. I think 200 or 300 people already working in a different way. I've seen like people who are taking it. A third are people who are thinking of retirement and they want to sort of scale down their hours, but do meaningful work, keep their brains active and and then slowly sort of retire into the sunset. A third of people are mothers and fathers who are balancing loads of things in their life, kids caring for elders. And they're saying, you know what, for a few years, I'd like to just be on a bit of the slow track 
combine things differently, be more flexible. And a third are actually very young people who are saying, you know what, I want to see the world. At least they wanted to see the world till COVID hit. But I want to see the world. I want to do different things. And therefore, this flexibility works for me. So I think models like you work are going to be increasingly important. Companies have to pioneer and experiment with models like this so that we can come up with a bouquet of options for our employees. We can pioneer and create and innovate new ways of working. Was there anything with the U-Work program that you thought would go one way, but it ended up going another um, and you pivoted or evolved the program? We're continuing to learn, actually. We're continuing to learn. One of the things is, for example, how do we ensure that people who are on U-Work build a community of like-minded people so that they have others to learn from? We're learning how do you educate everyone else in the team to work with people who are working on different terms and different ways. We are learning. I mean, I didn't think that we'd have a third of people who apply for this, actually people under the age of 25. I didn't see that. I thought it'd be largely people who are trying for grief because they're saying, you know what? I don't want to work the way my parents did. I want to try something else. I want to follow my heart. I want to do different things. I don't want to be straight jacketed into one way of working, one career, one job, one company all my life. I want to try different things. And the, uh, the best part has also been, which I didn't expect, is that we bring so much external orientation to the company because we encourage people to do projects with other companies or do work with other companies in the time that they have spared if there's not enough work from Unilever. And they bring insights. They say, you know what? I did this work in XYZ company. Here's what I learned. So it improves the external orientation. So I continue to be encouraged by it. And now we're rolling out into 10 countries. Malaysia, Spain, I've lost track, but we are rolling it out in 10 countries. And uh, I'm really curious to see whether there are any cultural nuances in the way people embrace this new concept of work. You folks also have a program called You Renew. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about that and why it was created? You know, the model of all of us go to university, graduate at 21, 22, and then for our entire careers, we rely on what we learned when we were 21, 22, is a ridiculous notion. That model is broken. Because half-life of a skill is two or three years. And the WEF is telling us that all the time, that the half-life of a skill is two or three or four years. You've got to continuously unlearn, relearn, reskill yourself. So what we're saying is we recognize that the days of the past are gone. People might, after five, seven years in a job, say, hey, I want to go and study for a year or two and come back. Or I might want to pivot and learn something new and come back. People want to do different careers in a lifetime, not just one job, one thing. So what we're saying is, yes, we'd we'd give you the time off to go and learn. We'd make a contribution to help you learn. We want to put some of your own money so that you take this really seriously. It's not a jolly. So people invest in their own education. We invest in their education. We give them the time off to learn a new skill that's relevant and exciting for them. And that happens to be relevant and exciting for Unilever as well. So that is what you Renew is about. And I think it'll catch on, not just in Unilever, but in many, many companies, because academic sabbaticals, our way of life, like academicians, for example, career breaks, giving people time off to go and learn something new is going to be the norm in the next five, 10 years. You just mark my words. So you commit to learning one new thing each year. I've read that sometimes that can be horseback riding. Sometimes it can be Spanish. Can you tell us a little bit about these commitments that you make every year and why it's important to make them and set aside the time for them? 
You know, I think learning agility is one of the most important qualities for a leader. You know, we have a leadership framework where we call it our inner game, a sense of purpose, service, personal resilience and mastery and learning agility. These three things are what we call the inner game. So I am a huge learner. You know, I love learning. I was a very good student. I loved learning. So in fact, I started a podcast, uh, Learn with Lena, because I just wanted to make sure that learn, learn, learn was like everywhere. Leaders are learning new things all the time. I spend at least 20, 30% of my time meeting interesting people. I mean, I just reach out to an author whose book I've read and said, hey, I loved your book. Would you care to have coffee? I reach out to people everywhere. I just love to because I learn so much from these engaging conversations full of insights and learning. So one of the things I want to do is make sure in my personal life as well, I role model that. And yes, I, I was always doing it, but now I talk about it so that I can inspire others in the organization that even I am setting aside time for learning. I might have a busy job. I might be a C-suite person, but it's important for me to learn. So every year I take on something new. So last year I started Spanish. I still haven't got as fluent in Spanish as I would like, but I said I'm going to do Spanish. Golf is another one and fast learning. And I'm making good progress in golf. My swing's quite a mean swing. So it's just because I believe the brain learns to connect in new ways. It gives you new refreshing insights. You start engaging with a circle of people who's different, who are different, the language enthusiasts, the music enthusiasts, the golf enthusiasts. So it grows you personally and professionally when you learn something new. We're all going to have to set aside time to learn. It's the right thing to do. You're constantly reading and reaching out to authors. Is there a book that you recommend? I am right now reading Courageous Conversations written by Amy Edmondson. I think it's a really, really good book. It focuses on psychological safety. How do you create a courageous organization where people can share ideas, speak their mind, challenge each other, resolve conflict? How do you create a truly safe place as an organization? And it's a pretty inspiring book. I'm also reading, you know, I lost my mother to COVID in May this year. So I've also been a little drawn to reading about life after death, what happens. I've been reading the Tibetan book of living and dying. I've been reading the Testament of Light, just books that are provoking me to think about, you know, what's, what's our life? What's our mortality? What's the purpose of our life? What do we come here to do? So that's what's keeping me busy right now, reading all of this. Well, first, let me say I'm very sorry to hear about your mother. It's a difficult thing at any time, but especially over this past COVID year. I wanted to ask, you keep a gratitude journal, and you've kept it for some time. How has this changed how you think about gratitude? What are your thoughts on that? I believe gratitude is the foundation for good mental health. So one of the things, for example, when we gave people a day off last year to just recharge and refresh, we called it a day of thank you. And it's a time to thank each other, thank your peers, thank your colleagues, thank people who have supported you through the COVID journey. So I'm a big believer in the power of gratitude. It keeps you humble. It keeps you grounded. So I do enjoy every night just spending 10 minutes thinking about the day, what went well, feeling immensely grateful for the things that have gone well. I've also encouraged my children to do it. And, I, you know, they used to do it till they hit their teenage years and they would say, oh, mom, we're not grateful for anything. You know, it's all, it all sucks. And then now when they finish the teenage years, both are now back again to thinking about the day's highlights and positive. What happened to you that went well today? What are you grateful for? I really believe it's a habit we must encourage more broadly. You know, thank you notes, 
always remembering to thank people. You know, we we achieve nothing on our own. We achieve things because of a collection of people, individuals, actions that take us forward. I believe that small actions make such a big difference. So keeping this practice of gratitude through the journal and through the things I do every day gives me strong, sound mental health and emotional health. What is your advice for leaders on how they can practice that gratitude and make sure that other people feel it? I think that's always the missing piece because I feel like leaders have gratitude for their teams, but their teams don't always know it. What is your advice for them? My advice would be, you know, this is the decade or the century even where the soft stuff is the hard stuff. How a leader brings a sense of purpose and service, how he or she brings compassion and empathy into the workplace, how they bring vulnerability. You know, when when my mom died, I, I posted on LinkedIn, I wrote about her. I talked to the entire organization about how I felt and how hard it was for me. I really, really struggled because she was such a big part of my life and continues to be a big part of my life. So I believe this is the time when the soft stuff is the hard stuff. The authenticity and vulnerability, all the stuff that makes us truly human is what makes us better leaders. So opening our hearts and minds is a huge step forward. And that's what inspires others to drive greater humanity in the world, which is the center, which is the foundation for our world to create a more inclusive planet, to create a better world. Show your heart, show your humanity. Be unafraid to show your warts, your problems, your challenges. Be a human being. This is the time for human being, not human doing. That was Lena Nair. Before we go, don't forget Meet the Leader's sister podcast, Radio Davos, helping you understand the biggest problems of our time. Find the latest episode of that and meet the leader on wef.ch slash podcasts. Here's a sneak preview. I'm swimming in the water, I'm in the ice, and I've been in the ice for the last 18 years, and I'm seeing the changes and I'm feeling it. You don't have to be an extreme swimmer like Lewis Pugh braving sub-zero Arctic waters to notice climate change is really happening. Immense storms that come down, wipe away homes, forests going up in flames around the world, people in subways in China and in New York. So what was seen as this far away problem is now here and now. As the COP26 climate summit approaches, the Radio Davos podcast will take you to the heart of the problem with some of the world's top thinkers. We are already in a period of climate change. It's already begun. Weather extremes will be ever more extreme and more common. So we'll have more severe storms, more floods, more droughts. And that's the result of not doing very much effective about it. Frankly, that's where we're going right now. That is the scenario we're headed to. In a series of special episodes leading up to the climate summit, Radio Davos will take you into the cold but worryingly warming waters of the Arctic. I remember opening my curtains at 4am getting ready for the swim and one of these icebergs dislodged. It was like an explosion. Thousands and thousands and thousands of icebergs pouring out. It was like a motorway. And we'll talk to people who are not giving up hope that we can avert catastrophe. We need different solutions that actually prioritize the well-being of people and the planet. We will have gotten the Earth back 
on a much more benign climate trajectory. And as the politicians talk the talk, the adolescence of humanity is coming to an end. It's time for humanity to grow up. We'll be looking for solutions in areas such as the ocean, forests, energy, and our cities. We could stop using our atmosphere as an open sewer. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts and join the conversation at the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. Don't miss our coverage of climate change and COP26. That would have a real impact. On Radio Davos. That's it for me. Thanks so much to Gareth Nolan and Robin Pomeroy for all of their help with the creation of Meet the Leader. And my thanks go out to this week's guest, Lena Nair. And thanks to you for listening. Please take a moment to rate and review our podcasts. And for an extensive collection of Q&As from our guests, go on wef.ch slash podcasts and follow us online on social media on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, and on Twitter using the handle WEF. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum. Have a great day.